Good morning, happy summer, and welcome back to First Thought Focus. First Thought is a life sciences-focused expert network with a mission to bring subject matter expertise back into the expert network industry. First Thought Focus is, a, is our virtual conference series that aims to showcase the breadth and depth of First Thought's experts and clients, while also covering a wide range of topics that are relevant and important to our space. You can find the replays of our past events and conference recaps on our website, firstthought.io slash focus. Today, we are thrilled to welcome physician scientist and corporate strategist, Dr. Frank David, to discuss his new book, The Pharmagellan Guide to Analyzing Biotech Clinical Trials. Before we get started, I do wanna remind everyone listening that we will be taking questions from the audience throughout today's discussion. If you'd like to ask a question, please submit it via email to hello at firstthought.io. Today, we're doing something a bit special. For the first five people who send in questions to hello at firstthought.io, and they need to be good questions, we will be sending you a free copy of Frank's new book. I will be in touch with those lucky listeners after the event later today. And with that, I'd like to turn things over to our moderator, Neil Canavan. Hi, and again, good morning. My name is Neil Canavan. I'm the managing director of the KOL Network here at LifeSci, and the moderator for today's discussion on the new book by Frank David, Pharmagellan Guide to Analyzing Biotech Clinical Trials. Now, this will soon be a TV movie, but I hope you stay with us. Playing the part of Mr. David will be none other than the slow-talking, fast-driving Vin Diesel. Discussing this casting choice with me today is the author himself, Mr. Frank David. Frank, welcome to the webcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right. Uh, first off, Vin Diesel. Personally, I would have gone with Matt Damon, but I digress. Let's move on to the topic at hand. These are the ins and outs of analyzing clinical trials. Now, listeners, the way this is going to play out is I'm going to ask things that are covered in the book that make me feel stupid and helpless. And the reason they make me feel stupid and helpless is that even though I have an advanced science degree, I'm mostly a journalist by training. I'm not an analyst. So there's a lot of stuff I have no choice but to sign off on because I simply don't know better. Uh, the presenter says the trial's a success. It's got a p-value of less than 0.05. I write that down. The next day, the stock goes down 10%. I don't know why. So to repeat, I'm going to be asking about things that I want to know about. You, the listener, might have other concerns. So starting right now, you can dial in your questions. I will fold them in as the conversation progresses. In general, we will cover statistics like p-values, confidence intervals, uh, the ins and outs of where to physically do a trial as if that, if that matters, uh, press release shenanigans, a favorite topic of mine, how to look at patient populations, trial design, subgroup analysis. There's obviously a lot of ground to cover. Um, so as I said, dial in your questions now and let's take it away with the first question, which is David. Why did the wor world, word underpowered piss you off? And what did you do about it? Awesome. Well, thanks again. Um, you know, just as a preview or just as a prelude to all of this, um, I am a full-time consultant. We are going to talk about individual companies. You should assume that any company that we mention is a potential client of mine. If there's any direct conflicts, I will let you know. Um, you know, with that said, um, I don't remember if I said this in the book or not, but I certainly have told other people that um, one of the main impetuses for writing the book was um, that I realized I was throwing around the term underpowered 
in client meetings and I wasn't exactly sure how to describe it and what it actually meant. Um, and I actually think that, you know, what you described as being someone with a science background and being a journalist, like that's sort of the intended audience here. It's certainly not for statisticians. It's not intended. You know, I'm not a statistician. I'm not someone who designs clinical trials for a living. I'm really sort of in the consumer category of clinical trials. So, um, you know, I think what I, you know, the, the underpowered, um, the problem with the term underpowered to me is I never really understood what's the difference between just saying that a power trial is underpowered versus it just failed. Um, and it felt like pretty much every time a trial uh, failed, someone was always claiming, well, it was just underpowered. Um, I think, you know, the key concept there actually is that, um, you know, powering is about what size effect you're actually trying to detect. So, you know, there's this sort of triangular relationship between, you know, the power, the minimum difference you can detect, and the size of the study. Um, and essentially, when, you, when a trial is designed, there's a decision made about what size, one of two things happens. Either the people organizing the trial decide this is the size difference I want to be able to detect, and then they figure out how many patients they need for that. Or they say, this is the number of patients I can afford. And that then backs them into this is the minimum amount of uh, difference that I can detect. So, you know, I think often when you see this underpowered question, it comes up, you know, in phase two studies um, where that second category of, uh, of decision making also happens, right? It's like, this is how many patients we can afford to put into our phase two. So therefore we are now powered to detect a certain difference. And I think the question that then ends up coming up when a trial like that doesn't hit statistical significance is whether that matters or not, you know, whether that difference was too aggressive or appropriately aggressive. So mm -hmm. if you're, you know, that's obviously clinical context dependent. So if I'm in a cancer study, for example, looking at overall survival and I'm powered to detect a nine month improvement in overall survival, and then the trial doesn't, doesn't pass that bar, you know, is not statistically significant. It, to say it's underpowered is basically to say, yes, it was powered for nine months, but actually five months would have been clinically meaningful to me. So therefore, mm -hmm. the trial couldn't detect that smaller number. If we would have had more patients and we could have detected a five-month difference, then that would have actually been meaningful. On the other hand, there are other situations where you might say that, again, I'll use the same example. Let's say the trial was powered for a five month improvement. And you say, well, actually five months is really where I would set the threshold for something that's clinically meaningful. Then if the trial doesn't fail, it wasn't underpowered. It was just a failed trial because basically you've decided that anything less than any improvement less than five months would not have been clinically important. So therefore that's a failed trial. Um, so that's really that, you know, I think that's one of the things answering the question when a company issues a press release or makes some sort of public statement, or when analysts say that a trial was underpowered, it really requires one to look at what difference it was powered for and decide whether you think that that's the meaningful difference or whether the meaningful, whether a smaller advantage actually would have been clinically meaningful. Um, you mentioned finances might be pushing this decision. I'm trying to figure out where well, the fault lies. Would you find this a more common issue with smaller biotechs who simply don't have the money? 
You know, it's funny. I mean, I've, um, you know, obviously I have clients that are both in biotech and in pharma and I've worked internally at a large pharma company. You know, I think there's always this, um, there, there's this idea out there among people who have not worked in large companies that large companies are just rolling in dough and there are never capital constraints on how to run a trial. And I think anyone who's ever been on a project team and had to argue for, you know, had to lobby for funding and had to go in front of a decision-making group and sort of get money to run a trial knows that that's just not true. So I think you see under quote unquote underpowered trials or trials where the sample size is driven by the, um, by the finances. I think you see that in large companies and you see that in small companies. However, I will say that at phase three, um, you know, certainly that's a place where usually in a large pharma company, if the decision is made to go for phase three, um, I would say it's less common to see a quote unquote undersized trial. And in fact, if anything, you often, you more often will see overpowering in large companies than in small companies, by which I mean to say, you've decided that five months would be the improvement that would be clinically significant, but actually the power is, uh, is the trial is so big that it can detect a two and a half month increase uh, mm. improvement. And no, you know, so therefore you can sort of win on statistical significance, even though that's not clinically significant. That's something that I think somewhat more often happens in large companies than in small companies. Um, oh. But in earlier stages, I think it happens in both. Okay, um, there are a couple of questions in chat already. Um, I'm not gonna address them this moment because I'm thinking we're gonna cover both of these just in the course of the discussion, but uh, questioners, yes, I will absolutely get to these questions. Um, now I wanna to turn to the very first graphic that I have. Um, I, I stumbled across an article recently. I didn't get to read it because it's got a paywall, but I think the point is pretty well taken there. And it says, that, you know, this was never intended as a use of like a verdict, use guilty, not guilty. It was supposed to be a guide. What the hell happened? What, you know? <laughs> yeah, it is a great, I mean, the whole history of pivot key values is super interesting. Um, you know, and it has been basically just a, um, you know, it's turned into a convention um, that P less than 0.05 is viewed as, is viewed as quote unquote significant. And I think more importantly, not only is a convention in most people's heads, but um, you know, more importantly from a regulatory point of view, I mean, FDA guidance has clearly sort of relied on a P less than 0.05 as sort of their benchmark for what they consider a positive trial. Um, so I guess what's important to know about that is, you know, many people think that a p-value of 0.05 means that there's a 5% chance that the trial is a false positive, quote unquote, false positive. It's not exactly true. The, the strict formal definition is that there's a 5% chance that if you ran that, that if you ran that exact trial, that you would have seen the difference as big as what you saw, even if there were no difference between the two arms. Hmm. So, um, so in practice, you know, why does it matter? You know, why does that p-value matter? Why does the p-value matter? I think it matters because it gives you a sense of sort of how confident you should be that the observed difference is really a true difference, reflects an intrinsic difference between the, between the two arms. So it, it, does the phrase highly statistically significant have any meaning at all? 
No. So, I mean, that's just sort of, in fact, there's, there are all these jokes out there on the internet, you know, where people talk about, you know, people comparing sort of different p-values and putting different words next to them, like almost statistically significant, very statistically, extremely, and none of it matters, right? Like, um, so that's one thing. The other thing to note is that, you know, when you're outside of a phase three trial, you know, where there's regulatory considerations, you know, there are, there's a great paper that was published in the New England Journal, which is titled something like, the trial was not significant, now what? So basically it says, okay, so let's say you have a p-value of 0.06. What does that actually mean? Okay, so again, if you're in a registration enabling trial, that has very clear ramifications because, you know, only under very special circumstances will FDA really, you know, approve something that has, that doesn't meet the PO of 0.05 threshold. But if you're in more of an exploratory stage where you're to really try, where the point of the phase two trial is really to decide whether to invest or not in a larger, in the larger follow-up study, you know, maybe you would say, okay, 0 0.05, 0 0.06, like it's still basically pointing in the right direction. And getting back to the discussion we just had about statistics, about power, you might say, okay, maybe actually what we learned here is that the difference between these two arms is less than we thought it was, but now we have more information and now we could design a successful phase. Three okay, you just used the phrase pointing towards. What I read is trending towards significance, which to me always sounds like crap. Well, and again, I think it, um, in, a, in a study that's appropriate, it really comes down to the whole question of powering that you started with, right? If the trial was appropriately powered for a difference that really is at the, level, at the minimum level of what you would accept as significant, then, um, then again, that's not an underpowered study. It's just a negative study. Um, you designed it thinking you'd get a P of 0.05 and you didn't. But there are situations in which, you know, trending towards statistical significance is, is relevant. And I think it's most relevant in the situation where you're using, again, I'll come back to it, where you're using a phase two study to decide, should I invest in a further study? And what should that further study look like? So you don't want to spend, you don't want to throw good money after bad money, so to speak. You know, it would be a mistake in that situation to just rinse and repeat and run the same study over again. Um, on the other hand, from a Bayesian point of view, you know, you have learned something from your P of 0.06 study. Um, and especially if you put that together with other pieces of evidence, like maybe, you know, you were 0.06, p-value of 0.06 on the primary endpoint, but then you also looked at a bunch of other biomarkers and other things, and they were all supportive of the underlying scientific hypothesis. You know, you might feel like, look, you've de-risked the underlying science and you've learned something new about what the true effect size really is. Um, maybe you've also learned something about how to better select the patients. And those could all inform a good design of a phase three study. So I think it's we're, we're getting a lot of questions here. And a couple of them are related exactly to what we're doing right now. So this refers to hazard ratio. I was going to ask about that, but I'm going to go ahead and read this question. Why is the hazard ratio emphasized more by some companies for certain trials? What kinds of patient populations and therapies are most relevant for using hazard ratios? Good. And what so, yep. So hazard ratios really come into play with what's called time to event studies. So, you know, that's, um, that's the most common place where you'll see them in, in biopharma trials. So that's a trial where um, sort of like a typical you know, many people have seen Kaplan-Meier curves for cancer, and I know you have one that maybe we'll look at later. Um, also in cardiology is another place where you see this a lot, where if you think about, for example, the trials of um, 
trials of lipid lowering drugs where you're looking at sort of the risk of having a cardiovascular death or stroke. Um, so what you're doing is you're basically marching out over time and you're looking at whether an event happens or not um, over time. And then <clears throat> the hazard ratio is really the way that it's the, it's the main way that you summarize that finding. And you basically say, what is the relative chance of having the event on the drug versus in the control arm? Um, so it's not like you can take just any old study that and make a hazard ratio out of it. It would just would not be, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a single parameter and you're just saying, did that parameter, you know, what percent did that parameter decrease by, then the hazard ratio is not really the appropriate measure. Hazard ratios really are used in biopharma, um, specifically in the context of these, what called time to event studies. I want to go to uh, one more math question. If I can have the, the second uh, graphic up here. Um, confidence intervals. Now, <clears throat> I, I, tried to, <laughs> I, I tried to get through this. I really did. Because you're yeah. like, oh, you don't need to be a math expert for this. And I'm like, oh, man. So the question right at the bottom, do I have to be a statistician to know whether or not a confidence interval is bullshit? Okay. Great question. So, you know, notwithstanding the fact that you defaced my lovely book. <laughs> um, so I would say there are a couple of things about confidence intervals. I mean, so confidence intervals and p-values are somewhat complementary to each other, right? So a p-value is really looking at the point estimate for each of the arms and saying, you know, how likely is this that this could have, that I could have seen this big a difference between the two point estimates. If the, um, if the two arms were actually the same, there were no difference between them. That's p-values. Confidence interval asks something a little bit different, which has to do with for each of those point estimates, whether it's in the control arm or whether it's in the experimental arm, um, how much, you know, how, how confident am I? You know, what is the, what is, what, what, if I ran this experiment over and over again, you know, where would 95% of the answers lie? For a reader of clinical trials, I think there are two, you know, non-mathy things to note about that. So the first non-mathy thing to note is that if the confidence intervals do not overlap at all, then the p-value is, I think, always from a mathematical point of view, less than 0.05. But you can have situations where the p where the confidence intervals overlap a little bit. And that can still be quote unquote statistically significant at a p-value of 0.05. We're not gonna get into the math there, but suffice it to say that that can happen. Um, so I think when the p-values are very separate from each other, you know, that's obviously a very good sign. When they're close, usually that correlates with these situations like p-values of 0.03, 0.04, and it's kind of complementary. I would say the other ways in why p-value, why confidence intervals can be useful in some situations is just giving you a sense of really how, how big or small the spread is in effect. So I think one of the examples I gave in the book um, was, a, uh, was a trial that was looking at exercise tolerance. And it was, um, I think it was looking at, and the confidence interval around the sort of improvement in the ability to do one of these, um, one of these exercise tests was between, you know, one minute worse to five minutes better or something like that. So it was, there, was some, there was some tolerance around the confidence interval. So I think that in some clinical situations that can help you um, figure out 
even if, regardless of whether the study is quote unquote positive or negative, it can tell you really where the where the bulk of the action is, right? So if if the confidence interval is very wide, it can even if the study is significantly uh, significant, it means that for any individual patient, there's a pretty wide variability in terms of where you think they might land. Whereas when the confidence interval is very narrow, it tells you that. Um, that there's a lot less uncertainty on an individual patient-to-patient -patient level. I will tell you that for me, as someone sort of on the consulting who advises companies and advises investors, I would say that I find confidence intervals maybe a little bit less important than I would if I were actually treating patients. You know, I think that if you're actually, you know, physicians who actually sit in front of patients, um, confidence intervals can be extremely useful in spelling out and sort of contextualizing how likely are you, Neil, to see a, a benefit from this drug that we're gonna okay. give you and what's sort of the range of benefits. I think for people like us, it can be complementary. Certainly there are clinical situations in which certainly if you're trying to assess the commercial prospects for a drug, you might be very interested in sort of answering this question of, okay, what, what, are, what are clinicians likely to think about these confidence intervals? Um, so I'd say that it happens sometimes, but usually probably not something to get wrapped around the axle over. Um, okay, I'm, I'm gonna move on now and I'm gonna go off script because I'm getting a lot of questions. Yeah. So uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna be jumping around all over the place. This one is, I'm gonna try to keep it within a, a flow of thought here. And this does go to what you analyze. Um, this one goes to intent to treat versus a valuable uh, and dropouts and stuff like that. I just wanna drop in one quick antidote. I remember at ASH one time, uh, the, uh, they put up the discontinuation slides. And one of the reasons uh, there, there was, I don't know, 100 people in the trial, two of them were discontinued because they committed suicide. One of them was murdered. I, I'm like, okay, yeah, boy, we dropped that one out of the analysis. So here's the question. One thing in clinical trials presentations that drive me crazy is the concept of last observation carried forward which to my understanding is that if you lose a patient for the clinical trial, you carry their last data point forward for accounting and future time point. If we did a preclinical trial like that, we would call that fraud. So please help me understand the validity of this method. It, it, great question. Um, you know, I think in general, all of these decisions about how to analyze the population, you know, fall on a spectrum of conservativeness to, uh, to less conservative. And they all can be fine in some situations. It really just depends on, on the context. So, you know, last observation carried forward, the idea is basically all we know is what happened up until this point. And, um, and we are gonna assume that, um, you know, we're just gonna take that as the, the last data point that we knew. Now, in some situation, you can imagine that, um, if you're looking at a parameter that you're expecting to, you're looking at it to increase or decrease, for example, right? Like, you know, we're looking at some, you know, uh, some scale, for example, or, um, you know, something where we're expecting sort of an effect over time uh, to, to change, then, you know, that is a relatively conservative approach, right? It says, okay, in whatever parameter it is, let's say your uh, hemoglobin A1C, okay, you started at 10 and now we're trying to reduce that. And you came back for your first visit at 9.7 and you came back for your next visit at 9.2 and then you dropped out and then, you know, you dropped out of the study basically. 
Now, would you have gone continued trending downward, um, you know, to 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 more significant numbers? Well, of course, it seems plausible. But a very conservative thing to do there would be to say, look, you know, let's just assume that you're a 9.2, because if we're still statistically significant, assuming, you know, giving you your last observation carrying forward, mm -hmm. then basically we have removed any possibility of bias. Um, you know, we biased against a positive result. So if we still get a positive result, that's a good thing, basically. So I think that a lot of these decisions end up being around sort of where's the bias, right? Um, Similarly, when you look, you know, that's why the sort of intention to treat is the least biased way of analyzing clinical trial data. It basically says, fine, you have patients who are going to drop out because they get hit by a car, because they kill themselves, because they move to New Mexico, because whatever, whatever, you know, all of those things can happen. And we're going to include all of them for the, to avoid any possible suggestion that we're doing shenanigans here. Right to do to avoid any potential bias that we are introducing by doing anything other than an ITT. Does this tie into the concept of censoring, which I've never quite understood? Yeah, so censoring is a little bit is 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 basically a cousin of this question. So censoring comes up again in these time to event studies. Um, so you know, again, in a time to event study, let's just take a cancer trial as an example we're basically measuring survival, right? So the event is death and we're gonna track patients over time. And basically we're gonna score you as dead if you die and we're gonna score you as, and we're gonna continue to score you as not dead if you're still alive. Now that's fine for if every patient stays in the study, the problem is what happens if patients drop out? <clears throat> and when patient drops out, they become unevaluable for the, um, for the endpoint, right? We all we know, let's say the study was meant to run for a year and someone's drops out after three months, we don't know how long they would have survived. All we know is that they did survive for those first three months and that's it. So that's called a censored patient because they didn't have an event, but now they're kind of unevaluable for the, you know, for for whether they would okay. have had an event. And the math of these of these time to event studies and Kaplan-Meier curves basically assumes that what it does is it basically allows you to estimate what would have happened to that patient based on the other patients who did progress past the three month time period. So every Kaplan-Meier curve you see or every time to event study includes some amount of estimation of what would have happened to the censored patients, which is legal as long as the censoring is what's called uninformative, which means that there's nothing they are related to the actual efficacy of the drug. So I'll just give sort of a trivial example. If there's some side effect to the drug that actually is directly related to whether the drug is working or not working. So let's say, you know, there are a bunch of drugs like in cancer, for example, where maybe you're going to get some bad skin rash and the skin rash is directly related to the potency, right? So if you get a bad skin okay. rash, it's probably going to work really well in you. And right. if you get a bad skin rash, it's not going to work that well. So in that case, um, if you drop out because you got a bad skin rash and you're just like, screw it, I don't want to be on this trial anymore, um, you're actually losing patients who probably would have been responders more like, you know, you're not, it's not uninformative anymore. It's actually informative censoring. So those are the kinds of th situations that you want to watch out for in terms of censoring. Yeah, I, I can see that would have come up with the Tarsiva, which if you, you don't have the rash, it's not working. Exactly. Um, 
Okay, so a couple of uh, questions. Um, the first one, uh, this is about rare diseases anal analysis. I'm gonna follow up with a question about adaptive design because we have a right. couple of questions with that. So here's the question of rare disease. How should we think about rare disease clinical trials that lack multiplicity analysis? This is a common practice and how should we interpret this? Right, so there's a bunch of stuff baked in there. So, you know- You have 30 seconds. Okay. So. <laughs> Um, so first, let's just talk the multiplicity question, right? So multiplicity, the idea behind that is um, that if you test a bunch, you know, stated simply, the idea is if I test a bunch of things in a clinical trial, um, the, and I leave all of them at a P of 0.05 level of significance, the odds that I'm going to get one of them showing up at P of less than 0.05 gets very high if I just keep testing a lot of different endpoints, basically, right? So, you know, that's one reason why it's so important to be looking in clinicaltrials.gov and seeing, okay, what is really the primary endpoint versus what are secondary endpoints? I mean, the whole, like, let's just take a step back. Like, the whole reason why FDA requires and why, you know, we as readers want to know what's the primary endpoint is because, um, in order to be kosher on the analysis, you have to pre-state what is the hypothesis that you were actually testing first and foremost. And if that doesn't work, you're not allowed to, you know, go and say, okay, well, that didn't work out, but I have 50 other biomarkers that I'm gonna test. And, you know, oh, now I'm gonna report that this one ended up positive. And I'm not gonna tell you about the other 49 that I tested that ended mm -hmm. up negative. So that's the multiplicity problem. I'm not sure that that's, per se, you know, that I think that that's a bigger issue in rare disease than in other types of things. I think, I guess the one challenge, one challenge that, that comes up a lot in rare disease studies is, um, well, two challenges come up, you know, in later, in some of these diseases, it's just not entirely clear um, what endpoint is that, you know, whether there's a single endpoint, it hasn't been settled, like what's the real endpoint that you should be measuring. Um, that is going to be important for clinical clinicians and regulators. So there's some amount of sort of exploring around that that sometimes is required. And sometimes you end up picking wrong. Like sometimes you picked an endpoint in a study and then you have as your primary endpoint and then you have a secondary endpoint, which is also pretty important, but you just made a call to sort of subjugate that, you know, put that down as a secondary endpoint. And, um, uh, and the primary ends up being negative and the secondary nominally ends up positive, even though that's not sort of kosher anymore statistically. Um, I'm sure there are some other things I could think of, but I'm not sure that they're, I guess I'm not getting, I don't have strong feelings about whether the mul multiplicity question is a particular issue with rare diseases. Okay, your 30 um, seconds is up. We're going to move on now. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to show- uh, we, should come back to rare, we should come back yeah. to rare diseases later though, because I think there are some other interesting things to say about rare diseases. Okay, um, adaptive trial design, uh, just quickly, my background changed because this is my favorite Kaplan-Meier curve. This was done for me by Jim Allison. Okay. Uh, so yes, from my collection now. Okay, adaptive trial design. We have, <clears throat> when are adaptive Bayesian clinical trial designs appropriate? What type of patient populations or disease characteristics justify adaptive design? Such a good question. I mean, I think uh, adaptive trial religious adherents would say all the time, always and <laughs> forever. Um, you know, realistically, <clears throat> there are a lot of really great advantages. To, first of all, I mean, let's just take a step back. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about adaptive trial design, right? Like, usually we're talking about something where um, 
some where there's some the most common situation is where there's some interim look at the data done in a kind of ethically and and sort of you know appropriate manner that allows you to then make adjustments to the design of the study and you know that can take several different um so that can be manifested in several different ways so i'd say you know, some of the common things you see in adaptive trial designs are things like sample size reestimation, for example, where you basically say, look, we're not exactly sure how big the effect is going to be. We're going to run the trial. And at some point in the middle, we're going to see how we're doing. And if the effect size looks like it's huge, we're going to kind of keep on trucking. If the effect size is, if it's clearly going to fail, we're going to stop the trial. And if we're in the middle, we're going to add patients because now we know that the likely effect is going to be, um, is maybe a little bit smaller than what we anticipated. Now you could get, you could have run that study and just, you could say the alternative there to running an adaptive trial would just be to run the bigger trial, right? You could have just said, you know, let's say I'm deciding, mm, should I run a hundred patient trial or a 250 patient trial? You know, and that depends on sort of what difference you think you're gonna see, you know, it gets back to the powering question that we started at. And you could say, well, you should just run the 250 patient trial. The adaptive trial allows you to potentially save some money and also you know, save exposing a larger number of patients to a, to a drug that doesn't work. So you know, if you can tell after 100 patients that the trial is going to fail or that the trial is going to succeed, then that's better than, you know, than running it through 250 patients or five, you know, what some larger number of patients from an ethical point of view. Um, there's also some financial and time-based issues that come into it, um, just in terms of sort of adding your, uh, you know, basically avoiding wasting money. Um, uh, there are some costs associated with sort of the setup and implementation of adaptive trials. I mean, these are non-trivial. And actually the whole thing about taking a look at the data in a, in a kosher way requires a whole sort of data infrastructure and there are vendors that specialize in this. Um, but, you know, in general, there are a lot of situations in which one could do an adaptive trial. Um, and, uh, and I think many more companies are sort of developing that, you know, continuing to develop the capabilities, et cetera. That being said, um, it's often just sort of simpler to design spool up and execute a non-adaptive study. So I think that's often just from a logistical point of view, why companies just don't do adaptive studies for everything. Um, I, that sometimes it's just not worth it. I have a follow-up uh, follow type of trial design that, that now it occurs to me, it might be just strictly academic, which is the umbrella trial. Uh, yeah. this, is, this is not your, so the, the example I use is iSpy where yeah, I ran into this, oh, at least 15 years ago, and I was stunned that they could actually, the regulatory actually allowed them to do it. So could you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of, so first of all, I would put sort of basket umbrella and platform trials kind of all in the same category. They're all kind of different flavors of testing one or more drugs against one or more diseases and being able to adapt on the fly and sort of change the number of arms and change sort of how you allocate patients, right? Um, I would say, you know, the issue there ends up being, what are you using the trial for? You know, are you using it for hypothesis, for initial hypothesis testing, or are you using it as a way to actually, you know, for regulatory purposes, right? So I think for initial hypothesis testing, these types of studies make a lot of sense, right? And, you know, both the basket and the umbrella. So, you know, in one case, you're testing multiple drugs in one indication. 
Um, I think that was the I spy situation, which was breast yeah. cancer, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, and in um, and in uh, and I spy also had a component, if I remember correctly, where they were looking at biomarkers and then they were sort of adapting on the fly based on biomarkers. And then you could imagine the opposite, which is you have one drug and you're testing in a bunch of different indications. So this is the kind of thing that often happens in autoimmunity, for example, right? Is it going to work in Sjogren's syndrome? Is it going to work in, you know? Um, whatever, I'm just blanking on sort of random, random mm -hmm. autoimmune disease, but whatever, lupus, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you could say, okay, we're going to test it in all of them. And then we're going to sort of adapt on the fly. You know, I think that, you know, in a phase two study, those can often be really useful and important. Um, in most cases, I don't think you would, you know, you could use that as a lead in to a phase, to a registrational study. I'm not aware of any situations where someone has used that, you know, you, you know, submitted to regulators based on that type of trial. I think it's usually a prelude to running a more tightly constrained, um, you know, trial phase three study that is that tests a very specific hypothesis. All right. Now we have again, this is all coming from chat. This is another type of trial where this is often definitely referred to in your book. Can we walk through a, a non inferiority trial? And then one, why would a company choose this route? Two, sure. Also, where the focus is lower bound margin in that study, how should one interpret a superior result? Parentheses, if the lower limit of the confidence interval is above the non-inferiority margin and above zero, yeah. and parentheses, okay. is the chance of a superiority result in a non-inferiority trial unlikely because it's not power to show? Awesome. Okay. So what I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, we're not going to cover everything. We're not going to run a tutorial on non-inferiority trials okay. in this context. Um, there are a bunch of awesome open source reviews on non-inferiority studies. If you go into PubMed and you just look for reviews on non-inferiority studies, um, there are several of them that are open access. Um, and I would definitely recommend them. They're all sort of, you know, some of them will sort of Cover, cover in the context of specific therapeutic areas, but they all basically cover the same, the same ground. Um, so I'm gonna defer, I'm, I'm, I'm using that as a way to sort of get out of, you know, my get out of jail free card on, on running a stats tutorial. But I will say that the, you know, the principle between, behind a non-inferior conflict uh, study, and certainly the place in which it makes the most sense is if you have a drug where the value proposition of the drug compared to an active comparator is not better efficacy, but some other benefit. So what could that benefit be? Well, for example, it could be a different route of administration. Let's say there's an IV drug, and now I've developed an oral form of that drug. And I'm not claiming that my oral, or a, or a drug that's comparable, right? And I'm making no claim that my oral drug is better than the IV drug. In fact, I might not even expect my oral drug to be better than the IV drug. I just expect, but I do expect it to be in the ballpark of the same efficacy, but I think that it's gonna have some other benefit. In this case, sort of a benefit to people who would rather take an oral drug than an IV drug, right? Or you know, a similar situation would happen in terms of safety and tolerability types of considerations, right? Like some sort of side effect. Like I have, you know, someone's uh, marketed a drug where again, there's some bad rash side effect. And now I figured out a way to basically develop a drug that's very, very similar on the efficacy side, but, no rash. Um, but it doesn't cause the rash. And so I don't want to run an active control study proving superiority against the other drug because I don't even think my drug is superior. I just think it's not worse. And those are the sort of classic situations 
in which a non-inferiority trial is, is entirely appropriate. Now, I mean, the question did raise this, this issue about are there situations in which you can actually claim superiority off of a, off of a trial that was designed for non-inferiority? So it turns out, yes, those situations do exist. I would say they're relatively uncommon just because, again, usually the ingoing hypothesis for these studies is that the drugs are pretty similar. Um, so really the biggest focus in these is missing the proof of non-inferiority, like actually showing you are inferior. That's the bad, you know, that's the thing you really want to be watching out for in those studies. Um, you know, my sense is I'd have to, I'm not sure if I know of an example of a industry sponsored non-inferiority study that actually then was able to claim superiority. Um, it is a theoretical possibility. I'm just not sure that I can come up with an example off the top, off the top of my head. Okay, um, again, we're gonna switch gears here. I, there's a question here in chat. I'm gonna fold my question in with it. My question has to do with cherry picking patient populations. Awesome. So you'll, you'll get this big slide, patient characteristics, Males, females, blah, 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 blah. The question has to do with diversity and how do we address that in clinical trials? My question is more towards uh, how can you look at this chart and see and see flags of cherry picking? Okay, God, we're really hitting all the hits. This is an awesome, uh, these, are, these are great questions. Um, okay, there are a couple things baked into that. So maybe I'm just gonna sort of, I'm gonna reorganize the question yep. a little bit. Yep. Um, so, you know, with any trial, with, with almost every trial, you're going to see a classic, quote unquote, table one reported, right, which is the characteristics of the patients. And if it's a two-arm trial, you're usually going to see the characteristics in each arm. So, for example, mm -hmm. how many males were there in the control? How many males were the experimental? How many people were, you know, left-handed redheads in the control? How many were left-handed redheads in the experimental? How many had an albumin above X in the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there are a couple of issues there. You know, I think you raised this question of diversity in clinical trials. Um, you know, there's an ongoing problem. In fact, I just saw that there was a, an article in STAT today about sort of how hard it is, even when you're trying to make a very racially and ethnically diverse clinical trial, how hard it is in practice to actually get a racially and ethnically diverse clinical trial. Um, I'm not an expert in clinical trials operations. I would say that this becomes, from an operational point of view, this becomes much more of a question, I think, um, for practitioners who are dealing with real live patients and trying to make treatment decisions, you know, where really you're asking, okay, the patient who's sitting in front of me, how much do they or do they not resemble the patients who were studied in that trial? And how worried am I if they're, if it seems like they don't resemble it? You know, if you're, you know, African-American or Asian for, and this came up with the Atacanumab studies, you know, where the proportion of the percentage of non-white patients was extremely low. And so the question is, okay, now you're dealing with a, you know, 70 year old African-American patient with dementia and you're trying to put them on Atacanumab, even if you believe the drug works in, you know, even if you thought the data were real, which we could talk about sort of later, um, you know, the fact is that there weren't, there were hardly any black patients who were studied in that trial. And so you're left with a little bit of a problem in terms of assessing. I think in my world where I'm more, uh, you know, I, I mean, yes, that is something that one should be interested in, especially if you're interested in sort of commercial implications. But, you know, I would say that rarely comes up in the sort of path to approval kind of, kind of discussions. It's mostly sort of a commercial 
you know, sort of how is it going to be used in the real world kind of question. Um, I'll just sort of follow up quickly and say that the other thing, you know, you, you raised, there were two other points that were raised there. You know, cherry picking to me is about subset analyses, right? So when I think okay. about cherry picking, I think about, you know, well, the bad news is our drug didn't work. The good news, it worked in left-handed redheads, you know, with IQs above 140. Um, and, you know, using that as a rationale for, you know, running another study or, you know, doing more fundraising, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's, that's extremely common. Um, I would say, you know, the short answer there to me is, you know, this is about sort of assessing uh, probability of success of, of sort of a next trial, right? So, you know, really the question that you're asking is, okay, now the company is saying they want to run another study in left-handed redheads with IQs above 140, how much, how de-risked do I, what do I think the risk is of that trial, knowing that in a broader population, the trial did not succeed, but then it did in this post hoc analysis look like it worked in this subset. And I think that ends up boiling down to how confident you are in the original science, how logically chosen that hypothesis was, whether, you know, about the left-handed redheads, um, whether there's any other ancillary information to make you believe that the story hangs together. Like if I were to say, okay, it didn't, it, it looks like I got a signal in left-handed redheads. And also I have this biomarker that shows that actually the drug was five times more active, you know, on this biomarker against left, you know, in left-handed redheads. Okay, maybe I'd be interested. If there's no other supporting data and there's no biology to really, you know, support the choice of that subset, um, then, you know, and especially going back to the multiplicity question, if it seems to have been sort of randomly chosen from a list of you know, tens or hundreds of different potential options, then obviously less interesting. And then I'll just make one other point, which is yeah. we'll get a lot bogged down a lot of times on this whole table one thing about differences between the two arms, right? So, um, oh, well, it looked like, you know, the control arm had, you know, people who were sicker or people who are, you know, more males and females or whatever, whatever, and they'll find something. You know, that's always a complicated situation. I will say that the practice of doing a p-value on, on those differences, on those parameters has been wide, widely debunked and sort of, you know, it is not the right way to do things. Most journals, most top tier journals don't let you do this anymore. There are still some second tier journals that, you know, that, that will allow this, but it doesn't mean anything for very statistical reasons we won't get into. I think the big issue there ends up being, you know, on that parameter that looks like it's numerically different between the two arms, is that something that would plausibly bias the results of the, res the results? And if so, in what direction? And you know, that becomes a judgment call, honestly. Okay, uh, real quickly, if, if, if it is a semi-quick answer, the, you refer to the, the uh, Alzheimer's drug that's of great controversy. A lot of people at the FDA actually quit when this drug was approved. Why did they quit? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, um, you know, I'm not a regulatory guy, you know, I, I know enough to be dangerous. Um, I would say, the, you know, there were a couple of issues there. When you think about just sort of how to evaluate late stage trials, you know, one of the reasons why the FDA generally requires two adequate well-controlled studies is, um, was highlighted there uh, by that, by, by the Adacanumab story, which is one of the studies, uh, at least on the initial pass, looked statistically significant and the other did not. That generally is not, you know, that generally precludes approval. So I think that's one strike against it from sort of a regulatory integrity standpoint. Second issue is that the um, 
there were a lot of shenanigans played after the fact in terms of turning the negative study into a positive study and basically saying, well, we changed how many patients were allocated to the higher dose. And if we only look at those patients, you know, then it does look like there was an effect. Um, you know, I'm not saying that those kinds of arguments are always don't hold water, but, you know, from a rate, you know, whether that's evidence to suggest that you, that it is worth running a follow-up study is different from saying that there's, that that's enough evidence to suggest that the drug should be approved. And I think that's another place where people, you know, took umbrage at the decision. And then the third was that, you know, a lot of the most compelling data was basically surrogate endpoint data that had to do with levels of amyloid. Um, oh. That whole idea that amyloid levels um, are related to clinical outcomes. Um, I, I, I don't think I'm the only person, you know, this is going to come off strong, but I think that most people in the, in the, uh, in the field believe that that hypothesis has been largely debunked. Um, there are obviously adherents and we're not going to get into it. If you are one of those people, I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can, we can fight about it offline. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, but in general, again, giving a drug approval on a surrogate endpoint is something I think most people believe that FDA should be doing relatively sparingly. I think this is just, an, this, you know, the other thing that makes this just a really difficult situation is just the sheer size of the patient population. And it's clear that from a regulatory point of view, you know, FDA views sort of the level of confidence that you need um, in a drug uh, differently um, if you're going to be addressing, you know, tens of millions of people versus if it's going to be, you know, tens or hundreds or thousands of people, um, you know, that there's just a different, and I think that there was a general view that, um, that the agency used standards, which might have been, might have been appropriate for an ultra rare disease, um, uh, but use them to apply to a situation which is not a rare disease and therefore, you know, felt like that was not appropriate. Okay, um, uh, I'm gonna go back to one of my questions because I worked very hard on this. Um, Morgan, can I have uh, graphic number five? And I'm hoping this is gonna tie back into the rare disease that you just mentioned. Okay, what the hell is this? I have no idea. Uh, Kirk Schalper, who's a pathologist, he did this for me. I, I think there are T cells attacking something, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So this comes, this sort of ties into when I uh, see ex- especially preclinical stuff and say, we use mouse model X, Y, Z, and this is what happened. And I'm like, well, that's a very nice looking mouse. Apparently it's not dead. This is all I can tell you about the mouse. You refer to this in, as intrinsic risk. There are something you just can't know. Is, does that sort of tilt into the rare disease space as well? Yeah, I mean, again, this kind of gets beyond clinical trials, but I would say in general, well, I mean, the tie-in with clinical trials, I think is, you know, in many situations that I find myself in for, you know, advising either investors or companies, you know, you're looking at a trial, which is either planned or ongoing and trying to figure out sort of what do you think is the probability of success? And I think there are a couple of components to that. And I mean, I would think I would outline four, right? So one of them is, um, what clinical data do we have, uh, you know, what clinical data led up to this study, right? So obviously if something has been tested in people already, we have some amount of information and what's the strength of that information. 
you know, one piece of it would, a second piece would be the design of that actual study, right? And that's some of the stuff we've been talking about before. Some studies are designed in ways that are more or less likely to yield positive outcomes, either, you know, dealing with power, dealing with the endpoints, et cetera, et cetera. Another, another category would be execution capabilities, right? So you may, you know, we could, you know, depending on the situation, you might believe that the same drug in the same indication you know, with the same trial design, with the study being run by Pfizer versus being run by two guys in a garage may have better or worse probability of success in one of those situations. But I think the fourth piece is really what I would call what you refer to as the intrinsic scientific, um, the intrinsic likelihood from a science point of view, which is how good do you feel about the hypothesis, right? And that's where I think a lot of the preclinical information comes into play. I would say in the IO space specifically, you know, you highlighted a problem, which I think is pretty common. And certainly I've had people tell me this, that a lot of the models that are being used are just too permissive. So um, in fact, I remember I was with a client once um, and we had gone to a major academic phase one center, basically trying to convince them to get psyched up about our study and run our trial. And we were showing them all of our mouse data. And, you know, the guy honestly was kind of ho-humming through all of it. And we went through five, six, seven slides. And finally, I had it in a book and I closed the book and I put it down, face down on the table. And I said, look, here's the deal. If you tell us what preclinical experiment would get you excited about this, we will literally call it in from the train on the way back home to Boston, okay? Like we will do whatever you tell us. If you say that there is a preclinical thing, experiment that we could do that would change your view of the risk of this drug, of the likelihood that this, that this drug will actually work. And the guy said, honestly, I can't tell you because I, there, is no, there, is, there is no better model than what you're using. All of these models stink. And you know, they're, all, they're, they're all just somewhat subjective. They're all, they're all just, they, they add a halo of uh, believability around the story, but they don't actually really move the needle. Now, obviously there's a whole spectrum here in terms of diseases where I think if you look at you know, certain disease areas, certainly some monogenic, monogenic diseases where there are really good mouse models that recapitulate with high fidelity, the clinical, uh, the clinical um, characteristics of the disease. Maybe you'd put those on one end of the spectrum, you know, or actually think about infectious disease, where honestly the ability of a drug to kill the bug in a dish is a pretty, pretty good predictor of how good it is going to be at killing the bug in people. Um, you know, that might be at one end of sort of, you know, ex preclinical experiments that really are de-risking. And then the other end might be things where the the models are largely derided as not being very, uh, very significant at all. I, I remember I did a project last year in uh, ischemic stroke, and there are a bunch of experiments that you can do in rats where you basically tie off a vessel and then you release the vessel and you can look at sort of yeah, you know, yeah. And you know the general basically if you if you read um, there are all these roundtables that have been done uh, uh, in this area. And essentially most, most experts believe that those models are essentially worthless. Um, you know, they create, they're nice for making pictures, but they don't actually de-risk the, uh, the clinical development at all. Um, you know, and then you think about things like autism, other things in neuropsych land, 
you know, I think where the, the models have typically been pretty awful. Um, things where it's clear that there are sort of an fundamental anatomic or other type physiologic differences between animals and humans that make them just hard to, hard to model. So, you know, I think everything's on that spectrum. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's no worse, no use beating your head against it. Um, I guess in my work, I find that either you're in a specific clinical area in which the models are the models, right? And you're just sort of doing the best you can. Or if you're an investor and you're losing, looking across diseases, then sometimes it can be helpful to contextualize and say, okay, how good, do, you know, all other things being equal, do I think that, you know, the best preclinical data in autism is more or less de-risking than the best clinical preclinical data in immuno-oncology versus the best preclinical data in antibacterials, that can sometimes be an interesting discussion on an investor level or on a portfolio level. We just have a, a few minutes left. I'm gonna ask a question. This, I'm gonna ask a yes or no question. Does it matter where the trial is run in geographic? Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, frankly, for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, the most obvious of which is that standard of care can differ, you know, between different regions of the world. So the kinds of drugs that people have been exposed to um, sort of what the, you know, what, what are the characteristics of the patients who are going to go into the trial can depend greatly on what's available, what the technical capabilities are in that country, et cetera. Um, you know, I think we've seen that in some cancer studies where, um, you know, you can run, you know, if you run are running a second line study uh, or a second line or more study, you know, those might be very different patients depending on what, you know, those patients may have different characteristics and have been exposed to different drugs. Uh, depending on where you do it. And then of course, there's always differences in terms of the technical capabilities when you think about, um, you know, especially in phase two, but even in phase three, you know, if there's any, uh, if there are any issues in terms of how you assess the endpoint, um, you know, you don't want it, you know, you can end up with variability in terms of how the endpoint is assessed. Um, that's one of the reasons why you often have centralized reading for some of these, for some oh, types of- uh, Okay, we have a follow-up that, that feeds in directly to it. So here's the question. Have you seen any systemic, systematic comparison of investigator review or central review? Because it seems like response rates and other outcomes always look better with investigator review and then worsen with a central review. Um, so I, so again, who's, who's, whose numbers do you trust? Yeah, that's my sense as well. And I think the general feeling in the, in the field is that central review is always preferable. Um, if you if you're reading if you're again from our point of view we're not designing trials where you know you and I and people on this call are probably analyzing trials so I would say that when I read a trial that does not have centralized review I just put that as another another check mark in the potential bias slash source of concern category it's not that I automatically dismiss the study but it's definitely something that I know all right this one touches on something that um... I've been witness to it any number of times, but again, I don't have the depth of knowledge to understand. Uh, you see uh, so-and-so trial, RMA, RMB, whether RMB is the competitor is an active control or placebo. You look at the results and they say whatever they are, and then you, and you come to your conclusion. However, the comparator arm in this trial did much better or much worse than one would expect. Without knowing all that history, there's no tip off, right? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. Um, you know, I do think, you know, one of the things I advise people when you're looking at a study, you know, the very first things to do are really understand what the goals of the trial are and understand sort of the historical context. Um, so, you know, there are certainly, 
you, people sometimes refer to it as placebo effect. I think usually what people call placebo effect is really just high variability in, um, in either the clinical course of patients or in the a measurement of the readout, right? So um, you, know, you have a lot of diseases which are sort of waxing, waning, or it's difficult to assess what the answer is. Like depression is the classic for this, right? Where, you know, what it's just, there's a lot of noise around, right. around, you know, the control arm. That doesn't mean that there's placebo effect, just means that the, the result is noisy. Um, often yeah, my, migraine is like that too. Migraine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think that there are, you know, a lot of these things that depend on patient reported outcomes as a, you know, as opposed to quote unquote, you know, a more quote unquote objective outcome, like a lab value that's measured by a physician. Um, you know, these are, these are extremely fraught areas. And, you know, I do think that it ends up again, being a contextual problem where you have to decide, okay, what do you think actually happened here? And, you know, I think the best clinical trials kind of take that variability and that potential into account and are already designed so that they are sized appropriately to, you know, to deal with that, or they have other design elements. I mean, there's all sorts of other crazy designs you can do where you can sort of have patients switch between the two arms. So you have run-ins, you have all sorts of different, different ways of dealing with that. But absolutely, I think it's a very important, I think the take-home message there is, it's very important to know when looking at a trial, if you're in a clinical area where, um, where there's been a lot of variability in how the placebo or control arm does. I want to squeeze in one more question, if we can do it in like 30 seconds, which is press release shenanigans. This is the very first thing we often see. Uh, how do we spot the crap? God, I don't know if I can do it in 30 seconds. But I'll... <laughs> Get a couple um, examples. You no, know, I would say, you know, the, any trial that does not start with a very clear, any press release that does not start with a very clear statement of, you know, whether it was statistically significant on the primary outcome, um, any, anything that deviates from that is cause for concern, right? So once you start seeing stuff like, you know, they mention an outcome, but it's not necessarily the primary outcome, or they mentioned that it was a subset of patients, um, uh, you know, or they mentioned that it was some sort of secondary analysis, like any of these sorts of things are basically, you know, cause for alarm. Um, again, it doesn't necessarily, depending on the context, that's not necessarily... Um, doesn't necessarily mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. I mean, in a phase two trial, you're going to see these studies all the time that are quote unquote nominally negative on a primary endpoint and yet still justify further investment and could still, you know, yield important information. Um, but I think, you know, most, the best, uh, the most upfront press releases are very upfront with what was the primary endpoint and did it meet it or not. Um, in the target population, and anything short of that is cause for alarm. Okay, there we have it. We have been speaking with Frank David. He is the author of the Pharmagellan Guide to the Anal Analyzing Biotech Clinical Trials. I want to uh, uh, perhaps uh, take the prerogative here. The way this is the more most questions I've ever seen typed in on on chat. If you continue to do this, questions you did not get answered today. If we receive enough of them, perhaps Frank will come back. Sure. No, I'd be happy to. The, I mean, I was just scanning through. There are a lot of awesome questions here. Yeah. Uh, right. We could we could do this for hours. Um, as All right. As, and, as, and we just might, but that. not today. So uh, Morgan, take us out. 
Yeah, thank you, Frank and Neil, so much. This has really been um, a very informative discussion, and we'll keep the listeners posted on, on when part two will occur. <laughs> awesome. Looking forward. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much. Thanks, Take everyone. Care. Thank you. Bye. Uh, good